Hello, and welcome back to the Sakis podcast, Making Adjustments, where we take a thoughtful dive into an element of culture or a current event that could benefit from a few healthy adjustments. If you're new around here, Sakis is a sexual assault counseling and information service, and we serve survivors of sexual violence as well as their significant others in the Eastern Illinois area. It's our mission in sexual violence in society, and we recognize the intersections of identities and different backgrounds and experiences all contribute to a culture of violence and oppression. Today, we're joined by a special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Kinsey Romack. I'm the intern at SACUS, and I'm also a student at Eastern right now with a major in community health. And fun fact, Alyssa and I went to high school together. <laughs> yes, we did at Neoga High School. Yes. Um, so like you said, you're majoring in community health. Mm-hmm. Will you tell us a little bit about that um, and a little bit about maybe what public health is? Yeah, so public health is literally anything that could be dealing with health in the public. And community health is mainly getting out into the community. So you see it a lot with prevention programs right. and trying to promote health in the community, promote programs to better health in the community. So when we're talking about that, um, as far as how it plays into sexual violence, you know, we know that sexual violence is an umbrella term that can include any kind of unwanted sexual contact, Mm -hmm. um, whether it is rape or whether it's sexual harassment um, or whether it's like genocide, femicide, all of those things play into sexual violence um, from like a small scale to a large scale. So how is sexual violence um, a public health issue also? Okay, so sexual violence is a public health issue for a variety of reasons. One, it is a crisis, like right now, for sexual violence. This could be through the lacking of education in America right now for our younger individuals and youth, as well as the fact that it is like a widespread disease, and it's a little different than other public health issues because... Well, one, we can't really define if somebody has problems with their sexual health besides like STIs and things like that right. in comparison to other diseases like you have mentioned to me before, like in heart disease, you can get those stats and see where people are like with their cholesterol and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And if somebody is sexually abused, you can't find that within somebody unless they come to you and say yeah I was sexually abused right yeah so it's intersecting in a lot of different ways in the public health field but a lot of people don't think of it as public health yeah Yeah. public health yeah right because like you said it is a public health issue but it's very different from a lot of the general public health issues that we see and we think of Mm -hmm. um but just like any other um disease um it impacts everyone it has an individual impact and a community impact it can have a family impact um, even like a business impact it impacts society as a whole um, and it requires um, research and treatment and um, policies as far as like law goes Um, it is a collaborative approach to preventing and ending sexual violence just like a lot of other public health epidemics so maybe we can talk a little bit more about how it is different from other public health epidemics like like disease Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so if we're looking at how we just had a pandemic and covid 
it was really pronounced throughout the whole entire country. Like everybody knew about it, and obviously the numbers were very high because it was the COVID virus. But if we are thinking about sexual violence, there is so much underreported sexual assaults. They just don't get reported, and it's mm-hmm. hard to even know how many numbers there are, even though the numbers we know right now are very high. Yeah. And that adds to the public health crisis for sexual violence. And I think it's just a lot different because, like, COVID, everybody was worried about it. Everybody knew about it. They were getting positive or negative tests. Like I said before, you can't do that if somebody's sexually assaulted. And the community isn't really participating in it as much as they are worried about other things like heart disease or covid and other things like that compared to sexual violence right Mm. yeah like you said with covid people were ready and willing to talk about it's all we talked about Mm -hmm. for two years and we still talk about it a lot and sexual violence has been going on for centuries and centuries and we still don't talk about it in a widespread way um people actually tend to just push it under the rug Mm. Um, so I think how we talk about it as a society and a culture is absolutely different. And I think another way that it's different is just how we approach preventing it because with health issues like heart disease, um, there are like individualistic measures that we can take, which we call risk reduction methods. And that would be like changing lifestyle, um, eating healthy food, exercising, to reduce the risk of development. If maybe, you know, that you have a history of that in your family, something like that. But if you have a history of sexual abuse in your family, um, there are not like food and exercise aren't going to help you. (laughs) First of all, it's a different approach. Um, That's a generational thing um, that's obviously going to affect you, could affect you Mm -hmm. um, potentially. And when we think about risk reduction for sexual violence, we think about things like pepper spray, keeping your keys between your fingers, taking a self-defense class. Mm -hmm. And those are all individualistic approaches. But because sexual violence is a family thing, it's a community thing, it's a societal thing, um, the change and the prevention has to be on a societal level. Um, It really has to be on every level, interpersonal, between two people. It has to be between Mm -hmm. families, um, in a community, and in society as a whole. But those things, like I mentioned, those risk reduction methods, on an individual level, they don't prevent sexual violence. Mm -hmm. I think it was um, the Justice Department last year published a study um, where they had, you know, done risk reduction methods with some female college students. And then what did change was how prepared they felt for if someone were to attack them. Mm -hmm. Um, But it didn't actually change their likelihood of being raped or attacked or sexually assaulted at all. And... Yeah, like we know, the majority of perpetrators are people that the victim knows. They're not just mm-hmm. random people attacking you on the street. Exactly. Although that, I mean, obviously can happen. Mm-hmm. It's just not what we see commonly. I think like something like between like 79 and 90 percent of attacks, sexual violence um, attacks or like assaults are perpetrated by someone that the victim knows. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're talking about um, public health, What are the social determinants of health? That was a term that I hadn't heard before. Yeah, so social determinants or social dimensions of health, whichever, but usually there's just seven of them. 
some people had different like varieties but the ones i learned were physical emotional spiritual social environmental occupational and intellectual dimensions of health and each one of them determines your health so that's why it's like the seven dimensions and also determining your health through the way like you are living like your social aspects or your physical like how well you're taking care of your body they all like play into the individual health or you can also look into the community perspective like how are we doing with our youth and their intellectual health or their environment are parks safe for them it just all adds into whatever person or community you're you're looking at right yeah and so I guess why did those things matter to us at SACUS and how do those determinants relate to sexual violence? Yeah, so the social determinants of health, uh, I've seen them constantly while interning at SACUS and also volunteering at SACUS because SACUS is very survivor-centered and in order for survivors to have a more healthier lifestyle, they need to have those determinants looked at. I know the advocates here at SACUS, they are always trying to better the health of survivors whether that's getting a better environment through getting them a new apartment and like helping them with job applications through their occupational health to afford that new apartment and then preventionists are helping the intellectual health of the youth around this area for sexual health SACUS has a lot of ways that they have helped the community and also individuals that come here for either counseling or advocacy, case management. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, obviously we try to be survivor-centered here. And if we're going to approach um, healing in a survivor-centered way, we need to see the whole person and not separate their trauma and what happened from who they are. Um, So I think that before sexual violence, obviously all of those social determinants, like you said, play into their life Mm -hmm. and maybe leading up to being sexually assaulted um and then afterwards we still have to take all those things into account because the sexual Mm -hmm. violence and the trauma is going to affect them all exactly Mm -hmm. so obviously it's important that we have comprehensive sexual health information but that's not really the reality that we live in (laughs) um what are some of the gaps in our health education in america you know specifically when it comes to information about sexual health yeah so In America, sex education could be a variety of things because each state can have their own laws and what sex education looks like within that state. There's a variety of states that do not require sexual health education. Mm -hmm. There's some that are focusing on abstinence or not getting the whole array of what sexual health really is. I know... If you want to talk a little bit more about Illinois, I know that yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we have the opt-in, opt-out programs. We do. Yeah. Like you said, um, a lot of states, I think it's, I think the number is like around 35, but like 35 states um, are still teaching abstinence um, in their laws. You can fact check me on that if you want to while I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, But that really creates a culture of, first, um, those kids don't know anything about sex and sexual health. 
and maybe, um, you know, preventing unwanted pregnancy or Mm -hmm. preventing STDs or STIs um, and things like that. They really probably don't know about how to ask for consent and get ongoing consent. They Mm -hmm. probably don't know what consent actually looks like because they've just been taught to not have sex at all. Yeah. Um, But we know that, you know, they're going to anyways yeah exactly (laughs) at least probably a majority of them are probably going to be having sex at some point and when we do see instances of sexual violence in states um, or in cultures where someone has just been taught to be abstinent that really creates um, a culture of silence and shame that could prevent that survivor from coming forward um, because they may feel like well you know I wasn't supposed to be having sex, even though it's not their fault Mm -hmm. and they didn't want that to happen to them. It's still that, that stigma and that shame is there and it creates just a big culture of victim blaming. Um, and like you said, in Illinois, while we do have one of the more comprehensive, Mm -hmm. um, programs for state sex education, um, that is, you know, evidence-based and age appropriate and given Mm -hmm. out by the CDC, which is what we use in our programs, um, it's still very much, uh, kind of sending shockwaves around our state like yeah. this past year. And currently, um, a lot of parents don't want it and schools have the option to opt in or opt out. Mm-hmm. And because it's costing them money to give those programs and to give that education, a lot of them do choose to opt out. And also they get backlash from the parents and community members. Mm -hmm. Some schools give the option of like, it's just by student. The parent can opt their child in or out. Um, But then you just don't have the same health education being given across the board. Mm -hmm. So we still see a problem there, especially since a lot of schools and communities are choosing to opt out of those things. Yeah, and I think it's also a lot of like false like rumors behind like what is being taught in the schools and like they might not take the time to actually tell parents parents just start worrying already Mm -hmm. that it's something out of the age appropriate realm yep there's a lot a lot of false information going around on facebook i know that i've just seen personally Mm -hmm. um Yeah. yeah about like these new laws say that we're going to teach our children masturbation at the age of three. Yeah. We don't do that. No. I mean, at least I know that we're not doing that in our programming. Yeah. And I don't think that the law says that. No. <laughs> um, so I just, I think it's really interesting how um, fear spreads rumors very, very quickly. Yeah. So kind of going off of what you said with the cost that schools are seeing, I think it's kind of ironic that they're opting out of those programs when there's a cost to the health aspect for young individuals who don't have that health education and it's later costing us money because for that age range of For the age range of 15 to 24, they contract about half of the 26 million new STDs each year, and that can cost about $4.16 billion in direct medical cost. Yeah, and that's just for STIs, you said, or STDs. Yeah. That's just the cost for S- new sexually STDs, transmitted yeah. diseases, and that doesn't include any of the other costs associated with Mm-mm. sexual violence. Yeah, no. And that 
that age range is only literally like one fifth of the population that are having sex mm-hmm. and that's crazy that they're they have about half of the 26 million that yeah. is in america right now like yeah no that's totally insane and so we do see a large gap in information when it comes to young people but i think we also see it with like older people as mm-hmm. well do you want to speak yeah. a little bit to that yeah so older people they don't really get asked by their doctors honestly like about their sexual health like right now because we have a lot of ageism within our country we are very youth oriented and we just don't think that older people have sex that's just like an ageist thought we just don't think that happens and that's also seen a lot like I said with doctors or like just in the healthcare field they just just don't think about that happening Mm -hmm. and there is a high amount of older individuals who are getting testing positive for STIs or STDs and even though they've lived their whole lives, they they still have those ageist views within it too. Mm-hmm. And they think, oh, well, I'm not going to get this. I'm not young. Right. And then they do get it because it doesn't matter if you're young or not. You are you can still get STIs and right. STDs. Yeah. yeah. Um, just like sexual violence doesn't discriminate, huh? Neither yeah. do STIs. Yeah, no, they do not. <laughs> um, I wonder too if part of why doctors don't approach um, – older people to talk about sexual health as much either is because they think oh well they've done this their whole lives they already know everything they already know how to be safe they already know Mm -hmm. and just kind of that assumption too is really Mm -hmm. putting our older population into disadvantage because obviously they are testing positive for stds Mm -hmm. they don't have good sexual health information being given to them yeah and i mean if you think about it whenever they were young they probably still didn't get good education either like it's improved a lot, but right now it's still not the best in some states. And Yeah. Yeah. And they may not have had multiple sexual partners since they were younger, especially yeah. if they're older in age and maybe they were married and they lost a spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and now they're having sex with different people mm-hmm. than they did for like a majority of their adult life. Yeah. That could absolutely, um, you know be different than what they're used to but they don't realize some of the consequences that could be there if they're not um, taking precautions to make sure that they don't get those stds or stis yeah exactly so what are some of the results of that lack of information and those gaps in education that we have in america yeah like i was saying stis stds those are higher but it's also like we said sexual violence is an epidemic that is occurring People don't know if they have been abused because they don't have been taught. There's also unwanted pregnancies occurring. And we know now with the overturn of Roe versus Wade that that's just going to increase because there's a lot of majority of states that have overturned it. And those like the people in those states that are getting sexually assaulted are not going to be able to get those like abortions when they need them because like the states aren't allowing it even though they were sexually assaulted or abused Mm -hmm. i think um obviously the overturn of roe versus wade is a big deal and a big issue um but i think it's it's our whole system yeah with how we approach and when in pregnancy is flawed because we don't have good um you know foster care systems in place there's a total lack especially in this area right now of foster homes um and a lot of times foster homes aren't the portrait of family love Mm -hmm. um we'll just be honest you know we would be hopeful 
and there are some that absolutely are that um Mm -hmm. but there are some that aren't great that aren't great either um Maybe we wouldn't have 32,000 unwanted pregnancies a year if we did have better um, sex health education yeah. um, and if we taught about um, prevention methods to unwanted pregnancies. Mm-hmm. If we had those conversations, then we might not have such a high number. Yeah. Um, so I think, like, you know, obviously the abortion issue is a big deal and it's really relevant right now, but we also need to address what comes before that and what happens after exactly, um, yeah. because we don't have good care systems in place for, for people who need access to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have good systems in place to maybe prevent unwanted pregnancies in the first place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just crazy to me. 32,000 yeah. children. Like, then, yeah. And like you mentioned, like it's going to increase now that we don't have, yeah um access to abortion across our entire country exactly and yeah and there's still even in states that do have abortion they have strict laws against like when it can happen very specific limits yeah and some doctors don't even want to try to do anything because they're just afraid that they'll get reprimanded Yeah. yeah something like that and especially like um i think we talked about this just between us earlier but you know, people crossing state lines Mm -hmm. to get abortions, they can face charges and so can those medical or care providers. Mm -hmm. And then if we as a rape crisis agency are aiding them in crossing a state line to get an abortion, Mm -hmm. we also could be charged or held in some sort of contempt by the state, even though I don't think anything would actually stick. You just never know. And that's not a risk that, you know, Mm -hmm. we would want to take because we want to be able to still be open and be here for survivors. So it's just a really sticky situation right now. Yeah. So with all of those um, terrible consequences of our lack of information, you know, are there solutions? What can be done? Yeah, of course. I think there's always solutions to public health problems. And there's a variety of ways, I think, that people listening right now could help. And also just joining together as a community, we can help. So if we're looking at like individuals, like right now we are both working in rape crisis centers. We're like putting our occupational lives into helping and trying to improve sexual health, whether that's through the prevention services ACUS offers or the advocates here that are helping people and being advocates for them. But even if you're not working within that field, you can also volunteer your time especially like a SACUS because that 24-hour hotline is very useful for people in crisis situations or people just needing to talk. And there's very, there's many other ways that you can volunteer like at rape crisis centers, pregnancy centers, and education centers too, just to help them. And like I said, advocates, you can be an advocate on your own time. You don't have to be employed as one. You could just research and know sexual health information, know what's going on within the laws in your state, what your what students are being taught, what your children are being taught, if they're even being taught anything. Mm-hmm. Just being an advocate through knowing it and being able to talk to people about it or answer questions if people have it, as well as being an advocate through the voting situation. If you know that there are certain people in the legislative or people that are on the ballot that are voting for sexual health education or maybe you're against it, you know who to vote for and your own personal views and 
through that advocate knowledge that you've attained if you are wanting to. But also, like I said, if you're a parent or like a caregiver, you can be there for your child, be open, let them ask questions, make sure that you are a safe space for children as well. If you were just a friend and you know somebody that has been sexually assaulted, be in safe space, know how to talk to them and understand that trauma they went through. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, it's really important to inform yourself, especially if you're a parent or caregiver so that you can inform your child, um, who may not be getting the most education or the best education when it comes to sexual health, um, and sexual violence. And as we're coming upon voting season, it's really important for us to vote informed, Mm -hmm. um, and look at, you know, maybe what these legislators have voted for or um, been a part of in the past um, and their public stances on these issues. Um, mm-hmm. That's really, really important. Um, like you said, you can volunteer at SACUS. We have our 24-hour crisis hotline and we love volunteers. <laughs> but even if you're not able to volunteer, even just taking that first step of like taking one of our trainings, which are absolutely free, mm-hmm. whether it is the 40-hour crisis intervention training that kind of just gives a really broad overview um, of SACUS and the services we offer and how to provide crisis intervention training and why we do what we do. Um, or whether it's, you know, a more specialized training like a trusted adult training where we teach you kind of how to approach younger children who we think may have been abused or groomed um, and show some red flags of sexual abuse. And we have all of the um, prevention programs that we offer listed on our website. And you can also reach out to us um, for more. There is um, all of our contact information for our prevention team as well as a contact form via our website, which is sacus.org. So, Kinsey, I really, really appreciate you being here today. Do you mm-hmm. think that there's anything that we missed that we need to cover? Um, maybe going off the prevention, if you maybe are a student at Eastern or a student somewhere else that you know has a rape crisis center around you, always reaching out to them and seeing what education they can bring to your classroom or even like if you're in the public education system, like the younger kids, just bringing them in and getting help from them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Use your community resources wherever you are. Yeah. I know that a lot of states have state coalitions um, against sexual assault. Illinois does, and we're part of that network. And there are a lot of rape crisis centers in Illinois that are wonderful, and we're there to help however needed, whether it's before abuse has occurred to prevent it or after abuse has occurred with counseling and advocacy and case management. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Kenzie. I really enjoyed having you. And um, we're so thankful to have you as an intern this semester and get to pick your brain about all things public health. Yeah, and I'm glad to be an intern here at Psychis. So thank you for having me, Alyssa.